This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Gentlemen of the Senate and gentlemen of the House of Representatives, While with reverence and resignation we contemplate the dispensations of divine providence in the alarming and destructive pestilence with which several of our cities and towns have been visited, there is cause for gratitude and mutual congratulations that the malady has disappeared and that we are again permitted to assemble in safety at the seat of government for the discharge of our important duties. But when we reflect that this fatal disorder has within a few years made repeated ravages in some of our principal seaports and with increased malignancy, and when we consider the magnitude of the evils arising from the interruption of public and private business, whereby the national interests are deeply affected, I think it my duty to invite the legislature of the Union to examine the expediency of establishing suitable regulations in aid of the health laws of the respective states, for these being formed on the idea that contagious sickness may be communicated through the channels of commerce. There seems to be a necessity that Congress, who alone can regulate trade, should frame a system which, while it may tend to preserve the general health, may be compatible with the interest of commerce and the safety of the revenue. The yellow fever epidemic of 1798 now abated. President John Adams was able to deliver his annual message to Congress at Congress Hall in Philadelphia on December 8, 1798. However, the road back to Philadelphia this year was a longer one than normal, and the path ahead was riddled with obstacles for the president and the nation. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As he waited in Quincy during the fall to see if his wife's health was going to improve, and for word that the yellow fever epidemic had subsided, Adams continued to meet with Elbridge Gerry about the situation with France, and to go through reports from Europe in order to determine what the situation was on the ground there. Since Gary was on his way out and had already declared himself to be acting simply as a private citizen rather than as an official representative of his nation following the departure of his colleagues, Talleyrand has sought out the closest official U.S. representative to reach out to for more formal negotiations. In terms of geography, that was our friend William Vance Murray in The Hague. At the end of June, Talleyrand's envoy, Louis-André Pichon, arrived in the Dutch capital to begin talks with Murray. As noted by Murray biographer Peter Hill, quote, Talleyrand's choice of Louis-André Pichon as bearer of peace overtures and his singling out of William Vance Murray as their recipient were, no doubt, moves carefully calculated to bring about a renewal of Franco-American negotiations. One can imagine Talleyrand consciously weighing the backgrounds of the two men 
balancing Murray's known capacity for independent action against the drag of his devout federalism, Wayne Pichon's first-hand knowledge of Americans and American politics against Murray's possible adverse reactions to a minor official with whom he had been passingly acquainted when Pichon had been secretary to the French legation in Philadelphia. Two, Talleyrand could reasonably expect that whatever Pichon conveyed to Murray would ultimately reach the eye and catch the attention of John Adams through Murray's regular correspondence with the president's son. Murray, being well aware of the history of the French negotiations to date, did at first doubt the sincerity of Pichon's overtures, reporting back to Pickering on June 26 that, though Pichon talked a good talk, he didn't get the impression that there was a willingness on the part of the French to compromise and adopt measures more friendly to the U.S. However, Pichon continued reaching out to Murray, and within a week, the U.S. minister was starting to wonder whether there might be an opportunity here. Meanwhile, Talleyrand also sent an agent, Louis-Guillaume Motteau, to Berlin to meet with John Quincy Adams, and Murray learned from Gary that Talleyrand had indicated a plan to send a peace emissary to Philadelphia. Thus, it's easy to see why Murray thought that the negotiations would move on somewhere else and his part was done, but Pichon continued approaching Murray. On July 17th, Pichon shared with Murray a letter from Talleyrand in which he urged the French agent to continue his discussions with Murray to convince him, quote, of France's sincere desire for an amicable settlement. In the letter, Talleyrand blamed Gary for the breakdown of negotiations in Paris and asserted, quote, that an accommodation would be effective immediately if the irritating measures of the United States had not constantly posed an obstacle. Murray that day wrote to Adams about his exchanges thus far with Pichon and of his belief that Talleyrand was aiming for him to write to the State Department about what Talleyrand had said in order to whip up more partisan fervor back in the States and keep the nation divided. Thus, Murray told the president that he would write only to him and his fellow minister in Europe, John Quincy, about this, as their private correspondence would not be public record, as letters to the State Department were. And with that letter, Talleyrand had established a line of communication to Adams that bypassed Pickering and the State Department. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At this point, we should probably take a few minutes to return our attention to what's going on in France, as it will have a role in these peace overtures. As you've probably noticed, dear listener, this guy Napoleon has been popping up more and more whenever we talk about France, and I think you all know that there's a good reason why. Last episode, I mentioned that he was planning an expedition to Egypt. Besides the colonial aspirations and the financial needs of the Directory government, there was also another reason historians have cited as an impetus for Napoleon receiving this assignment. Along with his growing reputation, the Corsican general had also grown accustomed to living in a more lavish lifestyle and being accorded more deferential respect. He had gotten a taste of power in Italy. As noted by his biographer Alan Schoen, quote, Bonaparte clearly loved the glory, acclaim, and power he now wielded for the first time. It fitted him like a glove. The entire administration of northern Italy, quite exclusive of his army command, lay in his hands alone. At a word from him, 
Ministers were dismissed, or nobles stripped of titles and wealth, then imprisoned or even executed. That was power. There was reason to be concerned about this ambitious young man who had established a power base independent of his official role in French government service. The problem was, he was also a double-edged sword. He was successful in a way that few military commanders since the start of the French Revolutionary Wars had proven to be. Napoleon had also sent back tons of riches from northern Italy, quote, hundreds of wagon loads of objets d'or, gems, gold, and silver emptied from the ancient palaces and churches of northern Italy, and thus had helped prop up the directory government with much-needed financial resources. For this, he was honored by the directory government upon his return and provided with yet another opportunity to further his acclaim and prestige with the mission to Egypt. Unbeknownst to the directory, however, Napoleon had already told an associate that, quote, I can no longer obey them, i.e. the directors. I have made up my mind. If I cannot be master, then I shall simply leave France. The Egyptian expedition, in addition to the immediate positive impact and vision for France, would also better position the nation to defeat the British, as Egypt was a key point on the quickest route between Britain and its most important and lucrative colony, India. Taking Egypt would disrupt British commerce and threaten its ability to maintain control of India. For Napoleon, a victory in this campaign would be a masterstroke, establishing him as a great military commander. For the Directory, it looked like a win-win. Either France would have Egypt, or they would have Napoleon out of the way. Now, I won't go into all the details of the preparations, as that is beyond the scope of this podcast. I do recommend, if you want to know more about it, Mike Duncan devoted an entire episode of his Revolutions podcast to the Egyptian expedition, and I'll post a link to it on the source notes for this episode. All that you need to know is that Napoleon was able to pull off a quick scramble to get everything in place, and Napoleon's flagship set sail on May 19, 1798. Now, this was a massive expedition. Over 54,000 men on 365 naval and transport vessels crossing the Mediterranean for Egypt. What's more impressive than how fast everything came together was that the French were able to keep a lid on the preparations for as long as they did. There were a couple of leaks that appeared in newspapers, but the government responded by putting out fake stories suggesting that Napoleon was preparing for an invasion of England. It was enough to throw the British off the scent, and that spring, the British government and ministry considered the possibility that Napoleon might be preparing to head to, quote, Sardinia, Leghorn, Naples, Malta, Corfu, the Aegean, the Black Sea, the Levant, possibly even southern Russia or Constantinople. Basically, all they could say for certain was that Napoleon would strike somewhere in Europe, North Africa, or the Middle East. They did consider the possibility of an Egyptian invasion, but in the British estimation, this scenario was not very likely. Whatever the threat, the British Admiralty sent Rear Admiral Horatio Nelson to the Mediterranean with a squadron to try to search out and stop any French plans in the area, and Nelson's fleet would come within 74 miles of the French fleet at one point. But in a time before radar and satellites, searching for the French in the Mediterranean was like searching for a needle in a haystack. Honestly, it was sheer luck that he even got that close. But that close just wasn't good enough and Napoleon's force proceeded on across the Mediterranean unchallenged. As it turns out, after their launch, the French fleet would not be going directly to Egypt, though. 
First, they stopped over at Malta and took over that strategically placed island on June 12th. Since I've had a good number of downloads from Malta, I thought I'd mention this so that I could say hi to our Maltese friends. As for Napoleon's fleet, once the occupation of Malta was accomplished, they proceeded on, and Napoleon would start to land his force in Egypt on July 1st. Again, it is beyond the scope of this podcast to go into the details of this campaign, but the most important thing for us to know is that it was a disaster. It was an example of the best and worst of Napoleon all in one. Amazing ambition and ability to make things happen against all odds, but also cutting things so thin so as to leave no wiggle room to eke out anything should a problem come up. The problem in this case was Admiral Nelson. He had promised the Admiralty on numerous occasions that, quote, I will bring the French fleet to action the moment I can lay hands upon them. And finally, on August 1st, he found them in Aboukir Bay. The French fleet that had brought Napoleon and his forces to Egypt had been here since the beginning of July, as the port of Alexandria, which Napoleon had hoped to house the fleet, had been deemed unsuitable, as it had, quote, no naval provisions whatsoever, not even the basic facilities, and would take, quote, at least a year before it could be made suitable to house the fleet. Should the British happen to locate the fleet, however, Napoleon had left orders that, quote, If the enemy appears with a very superior force, the fleet will then withdraw to Corfu. However, as Napoleon biographer Alan Schoen points out, As Nelson's fleet reportedly was about the same strength as his own, i.e. the French fleet commanders, the Corfu contingency would not appear to apply here. The French fleet's 1,287 guns being far superior in number and firepower to the British fleet's 1,012. Thus, on August 1st, the British and French fought in what has come to be known as the Battle of Aboukir Bay, or, somewhat erroneously since it was fought off from the River Delta, the Battle of the Nile. The French fleet, which had suffered for weeks from low rations and illness, was decimated. We'll leave Napoleon and his troops for now, but just know that there are two main consequences for our purposes from this battle. First, a large part of the French army, including this dynamic general, were now stranded in Egypt without the basics of survival. Second, the French Navy had just suffered yet another major setback. As news of all this filtered back across the Atlantic, it seemed to justify President Adams' view of the situation, that a French invasion of the U.S. was unlikely, that there was an opportunity to fight back against French attacks on American trade in the Caribbean, and that the U.S., might just have a good hand to play in order to force favorable negotiations. Adams received the first reports from William Vans Murray of his conversations with Pichon on October 9th. As they were written in cipher, Adams had to send them to Pickering at the State Department to have them deciphered so he could read Murray's letters in full. But he was able to pick up enough from the non-coded portions to determine that there was finally some good news coming from the direction of France. He ordered Pickering to keep the letters from Murray confidential for the time being, but I think at this point we know Pickering well enough to know that he'd at least be consulting with Hamilton about them, if not others. When not disobeying the direct orders of the president, Pickering had spent his time in the early fall picking a fight with Elbridge Gary. As an arch-federalist, Pickering had been irate when he learned that Gary had remained in Paris when his fellow commissioners, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney and John Marshall, had departed. With the lag in communication meaning that new information about the situation was trickling in, if arriving at all, Pickering began to simmer and boil over with indignation. 
who did the scary thing he was, unilaterally deciding to remain in one-on-one talks with Talleyrand. Then, the idea got in Pickering's head that perhaps Gary wasn't just being impudent, but rather had colluded with Talleyrand in an attempt to throw off the work of the three-man commission to the benefit of France and to the detriment of the United States. Pickering wrote to Adams on August 18th to warn him that, quote, Mr. Gary might come home charged with some soothing but insidious propositions from the French government. With Adams away from the cabinet and close to where Gary was likely to disembark upon his return, Adams had to be convinced to not be hasty in accepting good news from this possible traitor. Marshall's return and reports of Gary's private meetings with Talleyrand only reinforced the idea in Pickering's mind. And as summer turned to fall, Pickering decided that something had to be done to damage Gary's reputation before his return. Thus, on September 29, 1798, Pickering wrote a letter to the freeholders of Prince Edward County, Virginia, intended for public consumption, in which, quote, he characterized Gary as at best the weak and puerile pawn of the wily Talleyrand and indirectly suggested that Gary might even have willingly abated French aims while in Paris. In addition to the letter sent to Adams upon his arrival in Boston on October 1st, Gary sent one to Pickering, reporting on the end of his time in Paris and explaining his decision to remain after his colleagues had departed. He assured Pickering that once he received the recall notice, he had requested his passports, but that this request had been ignored by Talleyrand until late July. Further, he explained that he felt the publication of the XYZ papers had been a major hindrance of progress in negotiations with the French. Despite the problems he and his fellow commissioners had encountered, as with his report to Adams, Gary assured Pickering that the French were willing and eager to negotiate a peaceful resolution to the issues between the two nations. By that point, Pickering's salvo had already been launched, and within a few weeks, it would be printed in the Boston Gazette and likely other Federalist papers as well. And Gary would write to Adams on October 20th of his outrage at this public attack from the Secretary of State. Gary assured Adams that, quote, Had Mr. Pickering waited until my return, he would, I presume, have been convinced by my dispatches of the impropriety of forming his judgment by the representations only of Mr. Talleyrand, who had, by the publication of the dispatches of the envoys, become my antagonist. In the letter, he defended himself against Pickering's allegations and expressed his hope that Adams would, quote, be disposed in the most public and prompt manner to do me justice. Adams saw no problem with this request and sent it to Pickering on the 26th, ordering him, quote, to have it inserted in a public print. It will satisfy him, i.e. Gary, and do no harm to anyone. It explains some circumstances advantageously. Pickering, however, didn't see it as being quite so harmless or in any way helpful, and thus wrote to Adams on November 5th, refusing to have Gary's letter published, as that would require him to respond publicly, and this would, quote, further wound his, i.e. Gary's, feelings. Further, Pickering felt that publishing Gary's letter would expose, quote, not his pusillanimity, weakness, and meanness alone, but also his duplicity and treachery. If Adams didn't believe him on his opinion of Gary, Pickering referred him to Marshall and Pinckney, who would back him up. Pickering tersely concluded the letter by quipping that, quote, If Mr. Gary should insist on the publication of his letter, let him publish it himself. 
I shall then take such notice of it as truth and the honor of my country require. Again, the last thing Pickering wanted to do was to give Gary a stage to spread what Pickering saw as treasonous talk of capitulation and peace with the French. Wasn't that why they had the Sedition Act to begin with? To ensure a consistent message from the U.S.? Adams had little time to get involved in a dispute between Pickering and Gary. Even in late October, he reported back to McHenry that, quote, Mrs. Adams' health is so low and her life so precarious that it will be impossible for me to force myself away from her till the last moment. He knew, though, that the time was coming sooner or later that he would have to make his way back to Philadelphia. Quote, at all events, however, I must be at the opening of Congress or give up. The new session would convene at the beginning of December, and the new session of Congress meant that Adams would have to craft his annual address to that body. What would this message say, and in what direction should the administration and the federal government move in the coming year? Adams wrote to Pickering on October 20th, asserting that, quote, There are many things which deserve to be maturely considered before the meeting of Congress. Top on the agenda was the situation with France and, quote, whether it will be expedient for the president to recommend to the consideration of Congress a declaration of war against France. Assuming that France had not declared war on the U.S. and that his self-imposed restriction that no more envoys would be sent, quote, without assurances that they shall be received, Adams posed the question of, quote, whether in the speech the president may not say that in order to keep open the channels of negotiation, it is his intention to nominate a minister to the French Republic. He then put forward a few possibilities for the post, including Patrick Henry, Associate Justice William Patterson, Senator James Ross of Pennsylvania, and Senator Richard Stockton of New Jersey. They were all confirmed Federalists, including even Henry by this point, and none of them at this point had, quote, been marked as obnoxious to the French. If they didn't care about whether the new diplomatic envoy had an anti-French record, then Adams opened up the possibility of Representative James A. Bayard of Delaware, Representative Robert Goodloe Harper of South Carolina, or Representative Samuel Sitgreaves of Pennsylvania. Again, all Federalists. If they wanted someone already in Europe to be able to assume the post more quickly, U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King, U.S. Minister to Portugal William Lawden Smith, or the previously mentioned U.S. Minister to the Batavian Republic, William Vance Murray, were good options in Adams's estimation. This was all just something to consider between now and early December, mind you. One can only imagine Pickering's face when this message arrived on his desk. Given the amount of time in the letter Adams spends on discussing the possibilities of the new U.S. Minister to France, it was pretty clear that Adams had planned on doing an about-face and give diplomacy a chance once more. Further, he was going to announce it in the annual message in early December, just a few weeks away. Given that Adams was still at Quincy and likely to be there until close to time for Congress to reconvene, there was going to be little opportunity to dissuade him. And perhaps, dear listener, this is exactly what Adams intended. Grain of salt time here, my friends. While it was clear that Abigail was still not in the best of health, and indeed, she would not accompany John on his return to Philadelphia in November, as both John and their daughter Nabby had left her bedside by that point, I do have to wonder whether John played up Abigail's health issues a bit as an excuse to be able to plan out this policy change independently with as little interference as possible from the Arch-Federalists both in his cabinet and in Congress, who he knew would be outraged. As Adams worked on his annual message, 
Hamilton would be hard at work continuing to solidify his control over the army. After being run ragged with trying to keep the disparate generals on the same page from Trenton, and by the by, handling some personal business for Washington, because of course the guy administering the War Department and its handful of clerks had a load of time on his hands, Secretary of War McHenry called for a Congress of the top generals of the Army, Washington, Hamilton, and Pinckney, to meet in November in order to coordinate and resolve various issues with Army organization. He invited Adams to attend as well, but Adams declined, again citing Abigail's health. However, McHenry did convince General Washington to leave Mount Vernon and journey northward once more to participate. There was no doubt of Hamilton being there, of course. With the yellow fever subsiding, the conference was able to occur in Philadelphia, and McHenry arrived there on November 8th to make lodging arrangements for Washington. Hamilton, meanwhile, stayed with Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott Jr., though, as noted by McHenry biographer Karen Robbins, Walcott's wife Elizabeth, quote, was extremely, possibly deathly ill. And yet another example of the under-examination of the details of the Adams administration, that is the only mention of Elizabeth Walcott's illness that I've ever seen. An online source says that she lived until 1805, but without any further proof than an internet source, I cannot say for certain. Before I get on my soapbox of why there needs to be a biography of Oliver Walcott Jr., let's talk about the conference. Pinckney would be late to arrive, so after Washington and Hamilton's arrival, the conference began. McHenry had prepared an agenda of 13 questions for those gathered to answer, and Washington added to the agenda some questions of his own. As they dived in, Washington and Hamilton learned firsthand just how complicated the administrative issues were that McHenry was facing. Even when Pinckney arrived and joined in, it would still take the four men over a month to sort out all the major issues, despite, quote, working daily, even Sundays, as had become McHenry's habit. Ron Chernow notes that, quote, In working sessions on the Army, Washington seemed something of a figurehead. The vigorous Hamilton exercised the true authority. Washington would insist, however, quote, that only loyal Federalists be considered for the officer corps, lest Francophiles mislead the troops at a critical moment. Ironically, given his role in creating the party, Hamilton argued against this rule, but to no avail. McHenry sided with Washington. This decision would exacerbate already existing partisan tensions, though, as, quote, this meant that the army became purely political, dividing an already emotionally riven country. Other than a passion for designing, quote, handsome officer uniforms, including one for himself, Chernow notes that as the conference went on, quote, Washington's enthusiasm for the new army quietly began to wane. As McHenry and the generals worked in Philadelphia, Adams's doubts about the army mobilization were increasing. In a letter to McHenry on October 22nd, Adams asserted that, quote, there has been no rational plan that I have seen as yet formed for the maintenance of the army. One thing I know, that regiments are costly articles, everywhere and more so in this country than in any other under the sun. If this nation sees a great army to maintain without an enemy to fight, there may arise an enthusiasm that seems to be little foreseen. At present, there is no more prospect of seeing a French army here than there is in heaven. Though he was still writing of the possibility of war to John Quincy on October 16th, letters that he was receiving from Murray and John Quincy, as well as others familiar with the situation, were looking increasingly promising. Then, in early November, 
Word arrived in the U.S. about the French Navy's spectacular defeat in the Battle of Abukir Bay. As Adams ventured back to Philadelphia later that month, his mind seems to have been increasingly working out the semantics of how to advocate for peace. He was aided in this by Federalist newspaper editor Noah Webster, who that month, in his Minerva, criticized the Army mobilization, quote, as expensive and unnecessary. The day after Adams arrived at the president's house on November 25th, he received a call from a Philadelphia Quaker named George Logan, who had traveled of his own volition to Paris to talk with Talleyrand and other French leaders in a one-man, unofficial diplomatic mission to convince them to seek peace. Logan, upon his return to Philadelphia, had tried to talk to Secretary of State Pickering and General Washington, but neither had been receptive. When he showed up at the president's house, however, Logan was received, and Adams listened as, over tea, Logan assured him, quote, that Talleyrand wanted peace. Soon after his arrival in Philadelphia, Adams called together his cabinet. As none of them had sent in a formal reply to his request of October 20th, though of course whether Pickering actually passed it along to anyone else or not, who knows? He asked all of them again to give him written replies to the questions he had posed. Attorney General Charles Lee is the only one for which I cannot account as to whether he was specifically asked or was in Philadelphia at all in late November. But since the Attorney General was only a part-time cabinet member at the time who had to moonlight in his own legal practice in order to make ends meet, he can be forgiven for not necessarily being present. We do have, however, a letter from Lee of October 1st from a separate request for Adams for what should be included in his annual message. In terms of the situation with the French, Lee focused more on the attacks on American merchant ships and asserted that, until the orders to carry out attacks on neutral vessels was reversed, quote, there, i.e. French professions of peace or amity, deserve no attention but for the purpose of guarding us against the insidious machinations which may be contrived to create discontents and produce disunion of sentiment among the people. Like Adams, Lee felt that, quote, in the present state of things, we have more to fear from the axe than the arms of France. I imagine it will come as little surprise to you, dear listener, but Pickering, in his response, dismissed Gary's talks of the possibility of peace as, quote, fallacious hopes, and insisted that, quote, it now appears to me impossible for the United States to originate a third mission to the French Republic without humiliation and dishonor. However, he also did not recommend a declaration of war, as he felt the nation and its people were not yet ready for it. Instead, he called for, quote, further measures for the protection of our commerce by an increase of our naval force and an extension and complete execution of the measures for defense and war by land. Such measures would probably prevent a war, or if it should finally be inevitable, we should be prepared to meet it. Like Pickering, McHenry recommended holding off on calling for a declaration of war, but along with continuing to prepare for the possibility, McHenry also recommended that Adams get authorization from Congress, should the French try to take Louisiana and the Floridas, to send troops to take, quote, an early possession of New Orleans only and hold it during the war for the Spaniards, and until a treaty could be entered into with Spain for the greater security of our frontiers bordering on her possessions. As with Pickering and Lee, he too was against sending another diplomatic mission. But more so than the Secretary of State, McHenry recommended leaving open the possibility. Secretary of the Treasury Walcott noted some of the nuances of the present state of affairs with France in his written recommendations. 
Quote, the situation of the United States in respect to France may be considered as anomalous. We cannot be said strictly to be either at peace or in a state of war. Like his colleagues, Walcott recommended against the declaration of war at the moment, for while he brings up, quote, the practicability of forming an alliance with Great Britain, he also notes that with the recent defeat of the French Navy at Aboukir Bay, it was less likely that an immediate invasion fleet was on its way. Despite the weakened position of the French, Walcott too felt that, quote, sending another minister to make a new attempt at negotiation would, in my opinion, be an act of humiliation to which the United States ought not submit without extreme necessity. And Walcott saw, quote, no such necessity at the present time. For those keeping score, we are now 0 for 4 in terms of sending a new diplomatic mission. What say you, Secretary Stoddart? The Navy Secretary, too, felt the time was not yet right for a declaration of war, though he admitted that this was a change of opinion for him. He also felt that, while another mission to seek a diplomatic solution would be quote-unquote desirable, he did not feel that the conditions that Adams himself had laid out for quote, satisfactory assurances that the minister would be received and honored as the representative of a free, independent, and powerful nation had been met. Stoddart felt that they should stay the course and continue to build up the Navy to safeguard American shipping. With all of his advisors' opinions at hand, Adams went to work finalizing his annual message. On December 8, 1798, Congress assembled in Congress Hall in Philadelphia. They were joined by Generals Washington, Hamilton, and Pinckney, as well as the British and Portuguese ministers. Adams took his place in the center of the platform and began to speak. After addressing the recent yellow fever epidemic, as heard in the opening quote of this episode, and calling for increased measures at the federal level to ensure public safety to prevent future epidemics, which would be an expanded role for the still young federal government, Adams turned to the situation with France. He noted the litany of issues that the nation had with the French Republic and remarked that, quote, Nothing is discoverable in the conduct of France which ought to change or relax our measures of defense. On the contrary, to extend and invigorate them is our true policy. An efficient preparation for war can alone ensure peace. As his cabinet had recommended, Adams asserted that his conditions for sending a new minister had not yet been met, but he left that door open when he asserted, quote, it must therefore be left with France, if she is indeed desirous of accommodation, to take the requisite steps. The United States will steadily observe the maxims by which they have hitherto been governed. They will respect the sacred rights of embassy, and with a sincere disposition on the part of France to desist from hostility, to make reparation for the injuries heretofore inflicted on our commerce, and to do justice in future, there will be no obstacle to the restoration of a friendly intercourse. This was a much less belligerent message than his previous addresses to Congress on the French situation, and the Arch-Federalist did not like it one darn bit. What was going on here? Weren't we just going to war, and now we're talking about, quote, the restoration of a friendly intercourse? The Democratic Republicans didn't like it much either, as they felt it wasn't pacific enough, and felt that it was just part of the inevitable march to war. Other theories also circulated about the motivation behind this change of tone. 
In one example of the speculation, Representative Albert Gallatin wrote around this time that he felt Adams was changing his strategy on France because he was unable to secure a treaty of alliance with Britain. Overall, it seems like this annual message pleased very few folks because they read more into it and missed Adams's point. Adams seems to have felt that the possibility of peace was closer than did the members of his cabinet, but by and large, his address was in accord with their recommendations. In a couple of the histories I consulted about this address, they noted Walcott's opinion as being the decisive one, with Karen Robbins going on to note that, since Hamilton was staying with Walcott at the time, she concluded that, quote, the paper, i.e. Walcott's written opinion, bore the New Yorker stamp. Even with that, there were detractors in the cabinet. Pickering sent a copy of Adams's address to Murray on December 11th and commented that, quote, it is a subject of regret that he, i.e. Adams, held out the most distant idea of sending another minister to France. Though not quite as distant as Pickering might have thought, there would be many more developments that would occur before, spoiler alert, Adams named another minister to France. That, however, we'll have to wait for next time, in an episode I'd like to call Destiny Ridden in the Stars. Until then, if you have any questions or comments, there are a number of ways you can get in touch with me. I'm available via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can connect to me through social media at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. If you'd like to see what sources I used for this episode, those are available on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. The website can also provide you with information on numerous places to subscribe to the podcast to ensure that you don't miss a single episode. As a jovial start to the new year, I'm including a special behind-the-scenes treat at the end of this episode. As any podcaster can tell you, you don't always get things right on the first take. Thus, with a nod to the podcast friends at Totalis Rankium, I'm including a couple of bloopers for your enjoyment. Thanks to all of you for listening. And take care, dear friends. Until next time. Unbeknownst to the, unbeknownst to the, unbeknownst to the, the directory, the directory, the directory, the directory, unbeknownst to the, to give him written more, to give him written to give him written The last thing Pickering wanted to do was to give Gary a stage to spread what Pickering saw as treasonous talk of capitulation. (laughs) I am having trouble this morning. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.